Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of Headmere's ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Drew Smith, and today we're fortunate to be joined by Dr. Garrett Chobie, a fellowship-trained rhinologist and skull-based surgeon, to discuss sinonasal mucosal melanoma. Dr. Chobie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. This is a topic with which many listeners may be less familiar. How common is sinonasal mucosal melanoma? So Drew, overall, this is a fairly rare tumor. Amongst sinonasal malignancies, sinonasal mucosal melanoma makes up less than 5% of these tumors. So in an already relatively rare disease category, they're even rare within that disease category. Within the overall head and neck, sinonasal mucosal melanoma is the most common site of mucosal melanoma compared to things like the oral cavity or the oral pharynx. Of these, about two-thirds are in the nasal cavity and about one-third are in the paranasal sinuses. When you look at across all melanomas of all sites, this represents less than 1% of all melanomas. What additional epidemiological factors might be present? Overall, this is a tumor type with uh, relatively rare uh, risk factors, if you will. The average patient tends to be a little bit older uh, towards the age of late 60s or 70s, and it's slightly more common females than males. The incidence over time has been fairly stable, and there's no obvious predisposing risk factors. As opposed to cutaneous melanoma, which of course ultraviolet light is the main risk factor, that of course is not a risk factor for sinasal mucosal melanoma. In fact, when you look at some genetic studies uh, using things like Foundation One genetic panels, there is really no UV signature whatsoever in sinasal mucosal melanomas, of course, as opposed to cutaneous melanomas. What does the clinical picture look like for sinonasal mucosal melanoma? What symptoms would a patient present with? Overall, the presenting picture for these mucosal melanomas is similar to that of other sinonasal tumors. The majority of patients present either with nasal obstruction or epistaxis. And in some cases, of course, loss of sense of smell can be present if the tumor is high in the nasal cavity near the olfactory cleft. Oftentimes, uh, when you first examine the patient, you may find a painless vascular mass in the nose. As I mentioned earlier, the majority of these are within the nasal cavity, although certainly a certain percentage are within the sinuses themselves as well. About two-thirds of these will have some pigmentation. So typically, they're sort of dark in color, dark blue, or even some black pigmentation in color. Um, Although a portion of these are amelanotic, and as we'll talk in a little bit later, those may have a worse prognosis. A fairly classic aspect of these lesions is that many of them have skip lesions. So although the primary tumor attachment may be visible, you must carefully examine the mucosa surrounding this as darkly pigmented skip lesions may be present distant to this in the nose, uh, which of course is spread of the tumor submucosally. And although it's uncommon, you rarely could see this present with an enlarged neck lymph node, although again, this is not too common. Those basic symptoms sound familiar. What other sinonasal tumors would be on your differential as you consider these clinical findings? Anytime you see a mass in the nose, especially a vascular mass, a variety of things can come to mind. There are benign neoplasms, such as an inverted papilloma, which would, could be entertained. Um, certainly, this is the most common sinusal tumor, so common things being common. You certainly could, certainly could see an IP in some of these instances. Other common tumors that are malignant in the nose include squamous cell carcinoma, as well as adenocarcinoma. Now, an important concept that's probably worthwhile to discuss now is that when you do obtain a biopsy of these to sort of better delineate what the kind of tumor is, 
This frequently comes back at least on frozen section pathology as a small round blue cell tumor. And this is a classic thing that you see in, in many scenarios that could involve a number of malignancies that fit that picture on frozen section pathology. A good way to remember this is to think of a number of mnemonics, but I'll kind of list them out for you for your edification. Things that may fit the small round blue cell category include squamous cell carcinoma, sinonasal neuroendocrine carcinoma, esthesioneuroblastoma, sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma, plasma cytoma, Ewing sarcoma or rhabdomyosarcoma, and then lastly, lymphoma. As you've seen on this list, a lot of these may be poorly differentiated or some sort of neuroendocrine tumor, which sort of mirrors that of sinonasal mucosal melanoma. It is important to note though that uh, if you get a frozen section pathology suggesting this, before treatment, it is worthwhile to wait on that, on that final pathology. I mentioned things like lymphoma and differential, which of course is a non-surgical treatment as compared to many of these, which do involve surgery as a primary treatment modality. So that's a long differential with some alphabet soup added. What additional workup would you order if you're suspecting mucosal melanoma and want to discriminate from the other differentials? When most of these patients come to you, they'll come with some imaging, but if it's a case where there's no imaging present, of course, a CT scan is very important. I also really like an MRI scan. The MRI scan helps to show the extent of tumor in the soft tissue as well as involvement of surrounding structures like the intracranial space, the orbit, et cetera. And that's really key. So I get an MRI scan on essentially all of these patients. In addition, metastatic disease is not overly uncommon in these patients. So I typically get a PET CT scan for all of these patients, even if it's a small primary tumor. Only about 8% of sinasal mucosal melanoma patients will have regional disease present at the time of diagnosis. And about half these are single nodes, about half are multiple nodes. When it is present, uh, spread to level one and level two are most common. And about 11% of patients will have distant METs at the time of diagnosis. And most commonly, this is to the lung, liver, and bone. In addition to imaging, of course, a biopsy is very important. Classically, cyanase mucosal melanoma will stain positive for S100, HMB45, and melanin A, which is very similar to that of cutaneous melanoma. When you evaluate the imaging studies in the patient in front of you, of course, we do typically uh, like to apply staging systems to most of these tumors. It's important to note that the staging system for the AJCC for mucosal melanoma of the head and neck is very unique. It really reflects the dismal prognosis of this disease. It's important to note that T staging starts at T3, so in mucosal melanoma, there's only T3, T4A, and T4B. In other words, there's no T1 or T2. What that translates to is that every patient you see with mucosal melanoma has at least stage 3 disease, again, indicating the severity of this disease process. That certainly is a unique staging system. Yeah, cer certainly something to be familiar with. And the other thing that's unique about it is also the, the lymph node staging system is a bit unique as well. So simply it's N0 or N1. So as opposed to most uh, head and neck staging systems with a variety of, of end stages, this again is only simply N0 or N1. Again, a unique aspect to the mucosal melanoma staging system. So you've diagnosed your patient with sinonasal mucosal melanoma. What's the standard of care going forward? So this is certainly a nuanced discussion as, as this is a disease process that the standard of care is a little bit gray, if you will. Certainly, we like to resect these uh, with negative margins when at all possible. But as we discussed in previous episodes, sinusal tumors can prove somewhat difficult in that regard as the very key critical structures nearby, including the orbit, skull base, uh, carotid artery, et cetera. 
But when at all possible, surgical resection upfront is what we typically favor. There's been a lot of debate through the years about endoscopic endonasal techniques versus open approaches. In general, these have fairly comparable outcomes in regards to uh, rates of cure and overall survival long-term. However, the most important thing is obtaining negative margins. So in your hands, whatever you can do to best obtain negative margins is most important, whether that's endoscopic techniques or open approaches in some select cases. We know from some large database studies that negative margin is associated with reduced rates of distant metastases as well as better regional control. However, there has been some honestly mixed data on overall survival when it comes to the intraoperative margin status. There's at least one NCDB study which showed there's improved survival overall with negative margins, but no significant difference between positive margin surgery and no surgery at all. So again, there's a little bit of mixed data here, but overall, certainly getting negative margins is likely important for improving regional control as well as potentially improving overall survival. I'll also mention that when you do surgery in these patients, it's really important to resect the skip lesions as well. I mentioned earlier that many patients have some skip lesions along the mucosa uh, signaling submucosal spread of disease. And certainly resecting these in their entirety is really important to get a true negative margin resection. In general, we do not recommend elective neck dissection for clinically N0 necks. Although I will mention there is some uh, early preliminary data that suggests that perhaps a sentinel lymph node biopsy may be important in some cases, or at least may have some role when patients do present with distant metastases, upfront surgery is oftentimes not selected because at that point in time, you know, as we say, the sort of the cat is out of the bag. Now, there may be a rule still for surgical therapy, especially if local disease control is important for these patients or for symptom control. But when the patients do present with distant metastases, frequently upfront surgery is not what we recommend. Is that when we would be leaning more towards radiation or systemic therapy? Great question. So radiation therapy certainly plays an important role in this disease process, and the vast majority of patients do receive adjuvant radiation therapy, both in our institutional series here as well as a number of published studies. There is likely improved rates of local control with radiotherapy after complete resection. Now, that being said, the main question with radiation therapy in an adjuvant setting is whether or not it improves overall survival. There's been a number of studies looking at this, and most have shown mixed results, although there is one study out of Ireland, which is both a systematic review and meta-analysis, which showed that perhaps there is some improved overall survival and local control when adjuvant therapy, uh, radiation therapy is used following a negative uh, margin uh, resection. Now, in general, we do not recommend primary radiation therapy for these patients, unless, of course, they're not a candidate for resection or for palliation, if you will. Historically, Systemic chemotherapy has been used for salvage cases or an unresectable tumor as present, although the data on mixed on systemic chemotherapy is really disappointing. And in our current state, we do not use uh, systemic traditional chemotherapy for many of these patients. The new kid on the block really for mucosal melanoma, which is making a potentially a big difference, is immunotherapy. And this really has borne out from the cutaneous melanoma literature. We know that in cutaneous melanoma, a large volume of them, about 60% of them or so, will have BRAF mutations. This is open up to targeted therapy, including BRAF inhibitor therapy. Now, the difference in mucosal melanoma is that less than 5% of tumors will have a BRAF mutation. So in general, the BRAF inhibitor therapy is less favored in mucosal melanoma compared to cutaneous melanoma. That being said, 
Mucosal melanoma is an immunogenic tumor, and data from our institution has shown that those patients who have a strong immune response with high levels of tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes may have some better uh, local control or even overall survival potentially. So certainly, uh, immunotherapy is an enticing target for these particular tumors. In most cases for mucosal melanoma, uh, one or two agents have been used, including nivolumab and ipilimumab. Now, these are important because these are, generally speaking, less targeted immunotherapy uh, agents. Nivolumab is a monoclonal antibody. It's an immune checkpoint inhibitor against PDL1 or programmed death ligand 1. And what this does essentially allows increased activation of cytotoxic T cells to attack these immunogenic tumor cells. And we do use that a lot in our institution for these patients, either as adjuvant therapy or in cases who, are, who present upfront uh, unresectable disease, potentially as a uh, induction therapy, if you will. The other agent which can be used is um, ipilimumab. And this is a monoclonal antibody against CTLA-4. Now, in some cancer cells, including some of these mucosal melanomas, the tumor cells will evade host immunity by evading cytotoxic T cells. In these particular instances, an inhibitory signal will bind to CTLA-4, which really um, normally signals a cell for destruction. And thus, these cytotoxic C cell, T cells do not recognize the tumor cells. So this is the role that ipilimumab plays by being a monoclonal antibody that preferentially will bind CTLA-4 and thus allowing cytotoxic T cells to better recognize and destroy the cancer cells. So again, when we use uh, immunotherapy at our institution, it typically is nivolumab or some combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab. Again, we use these occasionally as adjuvant therapy, actually somewhat commonly as adjuvant therapy, and then occasionally as induction therapy for unresectable or, or locally or systemically advanced disease. Very interesting. Sounds like a variety of areas of potential research. And we'll talk more about that soon, but first, can you tell me about the overall survival rate of this disease? Do most patients survive this? So unfortunately, this would be considered a, uh, uh, a, pre a fairly dismal prognosis uh, historically. Um, when we look at the you know, data published from our institution, uh, from some large database studies, the five-year overall survival for all comers is about 22.7%. So compared to this other tumors, certainly not a good five-year overall survival. E even more unfortunate that if regional cervical lymph node spread is present at the time of diagnosis, the five-year overall survival actually jumps, drops to 3.9%. So unfortunately, this is overall a very uh, poorly survived disease. Now, I will say that most of this data comes before the era of immunotherapy. So we don't have a lot of data with recent years of this rare tumor with immunotherapy, but we hope that perhaps long-term that may be improved. That certainly is very dismal. Are there any markers that predict response? So it's an interesting question, something that um, we've been doing some research on as well as other groups as well. What, what we found in some recent uh, investigation is that there are some proliferation markers which may be important. What we've really honed in on is KI-67, as well as the mitotic index, if you will, for these patients. What we know is that traditional staging for this particular tumor does not very well correlate to overall long-term survival. But in some of our preliminary data, it looks like some of these prolifer proliferation markers like KI-67 and mitotic rate may better predict overall survival, perhaps compared to traditional uh, staging systems. What's important to note is that with cutaneous melanoma staging systems, many of these uh, pathologic or proliferation markers are included in the staging system. However, 
for mucosal melanoma, at least to date, that's not the case. So certainly an area to think about for the future. We also know that amelanotic lesions tend to be more aggressive and have worse survival than traditional melanotic lesions. And lastly, the presence of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes may overall show some uh, propensity for better survival than those who don't. Is there a significant push for other areas of research here? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what we've been doing some work on recently is genetic analysis. As I alluded to earlier, uh, BRAF mutations has played a huge role in treatment of cutaneous melanoma. But unfortunately, this is present, uh, this mutation of BRAF mutation is present in less than 5% of all mucosal melanomas. So thus, this makes it a much less favorable target for this particular disease process. However, what we've noted in our institution as well as others is that NRAS mutations are somewhat more common as well as perhaps uh, KIT mutations as well. We also know that from an epigenetic standpoint, cyanidase mucosal melanoma is also has a very specific pattern of chromosomal alterations, which is different than that of cutaneous melanoma or uveal melanoma. So perhaps another area of investigation to think about is the unique epigenetic uh, footprint of mucosal melanoma. Within the last decade or so, have there been any advancements in systemic therapies that may help with mucosal melanoma? What do you see for the future? So as I alluded to earlier, of course, the immunotherapies that we talked about are some of the big players here, and they're, they're really playing a more and more prominent role in the treatment of this disease process. So that's certainly an area to keep an eye on. There are actually a number of ongoing clinical trials that have targeted that, either as part of a larger clinical trial, including cutaneous melanoma, or individually for mucosal melanoma. As I alluded to earlier, you know, one of our pushes has been for biomarkers. So looking at things like proliferation markers, or even what we're thinking about doing next is a tumor microenvironment, which is really important for many of these uh, immunogenic tumors. And then lastly, of course, the, the next frontier would be targeted therapies. Unfortunately, the BRAF inhibitor therapy is not overall effective for these tumors, but perhaps things like NRAS may be a, a next target to consider. Sounds like a hot field right now. That's exciting. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and this is also an important area given the, the rarity of this disease process it really speaks to the importance of multi-site collaboration, of which there are a number of uh, those studies out there ongoing, both prospectively and retrospectively. Um, they're important for collaboration, both from a clinical data standpoint, as well as potentially for tumor banking, RNA sequencing, and a variety of other things which are really important, and which are ongoing uh, from a really nice collaborative multi-site perspective study. Excellent. Well, Dr. Chobi, this has been a great discussion about sinonasal mucosal melanoma. Before I move on to the summary, is there anything else you would like to add about this topic? Yeah, I'll, ju I'll just you know echo a couple important uh, important points we discussed earlier. Um, number one, in this disease process, which has you know overall very poor overall five year survival, there are a lot of opportunities for improvement. This is a disease I think that systemic therapy is going to play a, a larger and larger and stronger role, especially immunotherapy. But that being said, um, certainly surgical resection still plays a huge role in this and obtaining negative margins is really important when taking the patient to surgery. But that being said, um, I think immunotherapy is really the next frontier for this and perhaps even moving forward on uh, targeted therapies. Thank you so much, Dr. Chobi. I'll now move on to a brief summary of today's topic. Sinonasal mucosal melanoma is an uncommon sinonasal malignancy with dismal prognosis without any known predisposing risk factors. Patients will present with nasal obstruction, epistaxis, and loss of smell with a painless bleeding mass that is often pigmented. 
Biopsy, CT, and PET-CT are often ordered as part of the workup. Surgical resection is generally required, and radiation, systemic therapy, and immunotherapy may also be included in the treatment plan. Let's move on to the question and answer portion of this episode. I'll ask a question, then pause for a few seconds to give you time to think about it before I provide the answer. What is unique with the staging of sinonasal mucosal melanoma? T-stage starts at T3, making all patients stage 3 or 4, indicating the severity of this disease process. 11% of distant METs are found when diagnosing sinonasal mucosal melanoma. Where are distant METs most commonly found? Lung, liver, and bone. What genetic alterations are present in sinonasal mucosal melanoma, which differentiates it from cutaneous melanoma? BRAF mutations are common in cutaneous melanoma, up to 60%, and can be targeted, but are very rare in sinonasal mucosal melanoma. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to sharing more with you soon.